Good morning, Oikos. How are you? It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Do you feel this heat of summer starting to come into Houston? Just a little bit after our very, very cold winter. So this, this day, we're looking at the lie, a lie that says, I am alone. I am guessing that some of you this week may have felt a little bit alone in something. Anybody? At the coffee shop, kind of feeling a little bit alone, or maybe you went to the movies by yourself, or, or maybe you were sitting in your house and it was full of people, and yet you still felt just a little bit alone, disconnected, not sure. Well, the times that I have been alone, it's usually a reflection that it's not very fun. Now, sometimes you seek that aloneness, a time of respite, a time when you can withdraw, and yet in those times as followers of Jesus, we know we're not really seeking aloneness, but instead we're seeking to abide, which is actually the opposite of aloneness. We're seeking to be in the presence of God. But I think in our society today, we are more alone than ever. In fact, I saw an article that guys in their 40s, I wouldn't know what that's like, but guys in their 40s are actually more poten- have more potential to be or feel alone because they stop investing in relationships. They begin to have a care for their family and their job, and so many of those things take the place of friendships. And all of a sudden, you see a rise in depression, and you see more guys feeling like they're alone. I know for some of us, it's more of a physical aloneness. So if I look at my times in my life where you felt physically alone, maybe you are not married right now, and you really, really want to find someone that you can walk the rest of this life with. But you haven't found them. Or maybe you've lost someone. You've been married for a long time, and then your spouse passes away. And all of a sudden, in just one day, your life is different. Or perhaps you married someone, but it didn't work out. And the person that you thought you would be with is no longer there. Those are real, physical, no one's in the room, I feel alone times. Those times when you walk into your apartment or your house and it's completely quiet. I know what that feels like because I didn't get married until I was 29. Now, I wasn't thinking about getting married for all 29 years. I probably didn't care for about 22 of those years. But at least seven years, I thought the Lord had cursed me at 22 because I had graduated from college. I was thinking, what is wrong with me? I'm not married because all my friends were getting married. I didn't even have potential, really. When you only go on a date and then it doesn't repeat, it's not potential. 
And I began to absolutely worry. And when I look at worry, worry is that you get fixated on this one thing and you can't get yourself off of it. And I was fixated that I guess God has destined me to be alone for the rest of my life. At 22 and 25, it started to seem like reality. 27, I was feeling old. Unmarried, unloved. And I would ask God many a time, do you want me to be all alone? Didn't you say in the Garden of Eden, it's not good for man to be alone? I'd say, so what's up with that? But he would continue to be silent in these requests and these questions that I'd be asking of him. I wouldn't hear anything. The fact was, even though I felt alone, I wasn't really alone. I had friends. I had people. But I had this desire that I felt that I felt that if I did not have, I would feel alone. And it wasn't until I turned that over to God that I met Sarah, that he placed someone in my life to say, you will not be physically alone anymore. Now, emotional aloneness is a different, a different kind of perspective, right? Physical aloneness is that no one's in the room, or maybe just relationship-wise, I don't have any significant person. But emotional aloneness, you may have people around you all the time. So you could be here right now, and there's a lot of people around you, but you could be feeling very alone. There's a multitude of things that can make that make you feel that way. You could come home to a family of 10 people. But because you are so preoccupied with other things, it is as if you're in an empty house and no one understands you. You may be asking God, does he even care? Does he even care that in my core I feel alone? And when is he going to lift this burden from me? If you've ever dealt with depression, you absolutely know what I'm talking about right now. You can walk through a crowd or you can walk by your best friend and feel absolutely alone. I've never been diagnosed with depression, but I have definitely dealt with depression during times of my life. And when I look at the time that I mostly felt emotionally alone was when I was in high school. And that was because I kind of went into a new school in a sense. I didn't know a lot of people. And I remember this first day that we had lunch. And I walked into the cafeteria. And I was trying to decide where I was going to sit. I knew one person really well. Her name was Roxy McCoy. She had been my classmate all the way from kindergarten to eighth grade, but she was my only classmate. And we'd already been, we had already been made fun of 
earlier that day because we sat together in bands. And so they, so absolutely, that was not an option to sit by her at lunch. This is the first day of school. And I'm already concerned that someone's going to attach me to Roxy McCoy for the rest of my life. And then just a few years later, I'd be worried that I wouldn't have anybody. So I looked around in the lunchroom, and I went to this one table, and I went to sit down, and they looked at me. And they said, what the are you thinking? You can't sit here. So I sat alone that day. Now that is physical loneliness, but what it perpetuated was an emotional loneliness for the rest of my high school career, that I was always rejected and rarely accepted, that rarely would people invite me into something. Instead, they would exclude me from most things. And I actually left high school thinking, I cannot make a lot of good friends. Because those that I grew up with, kind of, said that you're not worth it. Maybe you have an emotional aloneness like that. That you feel discarded and rejected by those who are seemingly always accepted and honored. All this can make a spiritual aloneness. And I believe that sin produces loneliness. Whether it is your sin or it is sin against you, it can produce loneliness. And Satan loves us because he loves making us feel isolated. Because when we are isolated and pushed away, we can become fearful. And when we become fearful, we often become hopeless. And once we become hopeless, we forget that we have a God that loves us. Once we become hopeless, we have forgotten that we have a God who loves us. Or we may just doubt that God even cares and that he's not really near. Also, when we become afraid, we make dumb choices. We feel cornered and we re we react in ways that we may not have been. We didn't feel so isolated and alone. And in those dumb choices, we often sin. We do things that we wish we would not have done, or we say things that we wish we would not have said, or we think things that we wish we wouldn't be thinking. And we realize that now I feel shame and there's a great chasm or a great distance between me and God. And will he forgive this because it was a really stupid choice? Proverbs 18.1 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. When I thought about how we isolate ourselves, 
when we actually are the ones who are sinning, when we are the ones not being sinned against as much as the one making the choice to actually enter loneliness. Perhaps you're one of those people that have a hard time with pride. Any prideful people? Just a few of you? Yeah. When challenges come in your life, you feel like you have to survive it or defeat it or overcome it. And if someone comes in to offer you help, you say, oh, I don't need it. I'm good. I've got it. You say, I want to be alone. Because if I say, you can help me, that would make me look weak, incompetent. Oh, I hate feeling incompetent. In fact, that's the problem I have. When I see someone who's incompetent, I have very little patience. Because I don't want to feel that way myself. And if I ask, or if someone says, hey, do you need help with that? My first reaction sometimes is, do you think I'm incompetent? I can do this myself. I want to be, catch this, I want to be alone. And pretty soon you realize that whatever that challenge is or struggle is that you actually are incompetent. But now you have a dilemma, don't you? Because the person that offered you help that you said, I can do this. Now it's like a huge piece of humble pie to come back to that person and say, you know, actually, I do need your help. And no one likes to do that. So we try to isolate ourselves even more to conceive of some possible way we can accomplish this without any help, especially that person that offered. Any of you? Anybody got that feeling before? I don't want to point people or single people out, but I know you because I know myself. I've been one of those people. You feel completely isolated at that point because you've already rejected help. How can you go and ask for it now? You may be so prideful that when you see others asking for help, you look at them as incompetent. And so you don't want to be around them either. And where pride leaves you, where pride leaves you is flat on your face with no one there to pick you up. Maybe you have a lustful heart. You are so addicted to that person that you're kind of messing around with but haven't made a commitment to. Or you're so addicted to the pornography that you see that you can't put it away. Or you're so addicted to that emotional connection to that person that seems to be better than your husband in understanding who you are. 
maybe you are just so addicted to that lust that is growing in your heart that when you actually recognize it, shame comes in and you think God's not going to forgive this one. I'm all alone in this. I've separated myself. And so you try to stop. And in trying to stop, sin comes even stronger at your door. The person that you don't want to see or you're trying to cut out of your life because of that desire, you seem to run into them all the time. Or the pornography you're trying to cut out seems to grab on even tighter. Or that emotional connection, you seem to go even deeper. And you feel alone. And you feel like you can't tell anyone. Because if you told somebody, you'd be condemned. Greed. You spend so much time focused on getting the things in life that you are working hard, long hours. Because those certain things that you think will bring you joy cost so much. So you schedule yourself more and more and more and more because this idea of success is more important than anything else. In fact, it's more important than the relationships that God's given you. Or you begin to see relationships as a means to an end, a means to your success. Oh, don't you feel terrible when that happens? You're in that certain project, you want to accomplish that project, and you realize you love the project, more than the people you're working with. I talked to a guy at the baseball game yesterday or opening day for Zach. And he's in school. He's getting his master's, MBA. And he is so ready to be done with school. He's, I think, about five years older than I am. Hopes that he never has to pick up another book again after this next semester. And he's in a group project. And when you're in your 40s, there's nothing better than a, you know, group project. And he happens to be, you know, of course, you're MBA students. You can be in your 20s. You can be in your 30s. You can be in 40s, 50s, 60s. It, it's a wide range of ages. And there's a girl in his group project that they had to cut out. And it was simply because she didn't communicate. And his heart was there. I don't believe he's a believer in Jesus, that he believes that Jesus is his savior and that he'd follow him. But his heart has the caring capacity of God because he said, you know, we didn't want to cut her out because if she would have come to us and said, hey, I'm sick or my kid is sick or this is happening, I would have done her work for her. But we tried to call her, and she just didn't respond. Several people tried to get in contact with her, and she just wouldn't respond. And I thought about her, 
And I thought about that group. Where is she feeling alone? Because she must be pretty alone. She doesn't know how to communicate to the group, even when they're trying to reach out to her. I think sometimes the project can overcome us, but I thought that was a great example of a guy who isn't necessarily a Jesus follower, but he cares about people first. Maybe you are a person that just can't get outside yourself. Do you guys know anybody like that? I mean, I know you would never be like that. Because we always know someone that's like that and never ourselves. Because we can't get outside of ourselves to see that it is actually us that can't get outside of ourselves. You are like this when someone is talking to you and all you can be thinking about is how this affects you. You are someone like this when someone is talking to you and the only thing you can be thinking about is how to say something that's good in response so that they can look at you and go, ooh, you're really wise. That is, not, that is someone who can't get outside of themselves. You are so persistent about worrying about yourself, you may neglect those around you. You may be so persistent about worrying about your house, your family, your stuff, your career, your children, your pains, your stuff, that when faced to actually recognize that someone else may be in more need than you, it's hard for you to get out of it. In fact, even when you go help someone, you're thinking, oh, look at me, how good I am. I'm helping this poor person. This is a, a classic thing of narcissism, but I thought it was better to say you can't get outside of yourself. And I believe we all are a little bit narcissistic at times. And if you can't identify your own narcissism, let someone else identify it for you. You have no time to ask or care or love for others. And the funny thing is, you worry about all these things that you can really only get from the Lord and from his people. At the end of the day, the Lord provides for his people through himself and through his people. But you're so worried about yourself. You've pushed those things away. And you are absolutely alone. In the book of Zephaniah, how many of you read Zephaniah recently? Awesome. Look, I can say anything you won't know. So Zephaniah, in the book of Zephaniah, the people of God, this is a prophet in the day where they're trying to move the people closer to God. That's basically the whole Bible is always trying to move people back to God. Well, at this time, they were under the rule of a good king, Josiah. 
and they're trying to return to the law, but the people at the same time, they recognized that they had a God, but they also were like, but we can do whatever we want. And we can believe in this God and this God and this God because it's all the same. Does it sound familiar to our day? So the people in the days of Zephaniah, they were conflicted because they wanted all these little different things. But God's law had just been revealed to them again. And God's law said no to some of these things. And they didn't really like that. They didn't like being called into a relationship with God. A real relationship, not one that would just be something to look at, but a relationship that meant there would be a covenant, that there would be a back and forth, both a responsibility to each other and a relationship with each other. They didn't want it. And so Zephaniah was speaking directly to their spiritual aloneness. They believed that they could hide from God, that they could go in dark corners and do what they wanted to do, and God wouldn't care or recognize what they were doing. They could just go on doing their life as long as they tried to hide it from God. And when I was reading through Zephaniah this week, I thought, man, this sounds familiar. To a nation who says we're Christian, mostly, where most people would say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, like 80%. But he's just one of the things I can believe in. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says, I will search with lantern, lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. When we are feeling alone, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, I wonder what would happen if we could hear the whisper of the Lord asking us to repent and return to him. What if we could hear him say, it's okay come back to me. What would happen if we took up the posture that we hear in this psalm, Psalm 73? Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand, guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Now this psalmist isn't talking about a relationship that comes and goes. On the whims of how we feel, whether alone or with everyone, this psalmist is talking about a God who stands by your side and holds your hand no matter what you face. 
This is a God who holds your hand even when the stuff we go through seems to drag on. When that feeling of aloneness seems to drag on and on and on. In those times when you cry out to God and you don't hear anything right away. Over the years that you cry out to God and you still wait and you wait and you wait. And nothing seems to happen. The psalmist says, he is by your side. He did this for the people in Zephaniah's time. Even though they had rejected him and said, you're just one of many. God's words to them through the prophet Zephaniah were very sweet and solid. In verse 17 in chapter 3, it says, For the Lord your God is living among you. Even though you don't care, he is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, even though you don't delight in him. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Jump a few hundred years later, and Jesus would say this to his disciples. In John chapter 14, verse 16, it says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I think that would be a good verse for us to write down. If you are in a period right now where you feel alone, though I was never an orphan, I think growing up, if you were an orphan, you must feel very alone. No one that's watching over you, no one that's saying, you are mine. Could you think in those moments when you are spiritually feeling alone, in those moments when you are emotionally feeling alone, In those moments that you are physically alone, walking into that quiet apartment, and no one's there. Being 24 and thinking, I'm never going to get married. Being 50 and saying, I've never been married, but I'd like to be. Being 70 and saying, I've lost my spouse, my one friend. Being 40 and saying my marriage is over. Being 16 and having your best friend stab you in the back and say you're not my friend anymore. Or being 20 and seeing all your friends get married except you. Or being 12 and going to the lunch table 
and having people say, you're not welcome here. God's word is, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. In those moments that we feel the most alone, would we not or could we not remember that God is coming? He's coming to be with you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus is in us. And though Satan tries to twist everything and make you feel so alone, so he can isolate you and make you fearful, the gospel is Jesus has chosen us through dying on the cross and rising again. And not only did he do that outside action of salvation, but he's done a very direct and personal invitation for the Spirit to live in you. And we see that when you are baptized. We remember it every time you remember your baptism. That the Spirit of the God who created the heavens and the earth lives in you and has been personally invited by Jesus to do so. The one who made everything right said, my spirit will be in you. Not for a little bit, not for a long time, but forever. And that is why it's not good for man to be alone. That is why we look to our God and say, we're not alone. He made Eve in the garden so that Adam wouldn't be alone, but the truth was, he was in the garden too. The truth was when Adam and Eve said, we don't want you necessarily. We can do this on our own. We think we got this. And then they realized they messed up and they hid. Who came calling? Who came to those who had become orphans? But God, the father of the universe, calling out their name and saying, why are you hiding? Come out. Be with me. God is Emmanuel, which mean, means he is with us. And that is not an empty promise because we do believe in a God who fulfills his promises. Amen? That doesn't mean you can just disregard your feelings. It doesn't mean you can disregard that maybe you do go home today to an empty apartment. But it does mean that you are not alone no matter what your circumstance is. It's one of the reasons why here at Oikos, we believe that missional communities are important. It's one of the reasons why I'm inviting each and every one of you to come to my house this afternoon, because I believe that when you share food with one another, relationships deepen. There's a group that started in a high school, I just saw it this morning. It's called Dining Together. It's in a high school because they recognize that there are kids who are just like me, who had 
gone to a table, were rejected, and ended up at a table by themselves. And this group of kids, they get together, and I have no idea if they are motivated by Jesus to do this. Jesus is in everything, though. We got to realize that. Even if they don't actually proclaim that he is the one motivating them, he's always looking out to love his children. And so this group, they get together before lunch period. And there's about 20 of them. And they all go, we believe in what? Dying together. Dying together. Everybody? So I'll see you all this afternoon. Dying together. And then they go out, and their mission is to look for the kid who's sitting by themselves. And then they go, and they not only sit by that kid, but they actually step into their life for a moment and ask some great questions about who they are, what they're doing. This is what happens in missional community. Missional community is not about just coming together to eat meals. It's about coming together so that we can learn about one another because we're not meant to be alone. And I know that when you feel alone, sometimes it's scary to walk into a place where you may not be alone anymore because that is what you know. Today, God is calling you into something that you may not know. And that's his presence. And he works through his people. So missional communities are the training ground for us to reclaim family in the church. And whether you think you want that or you don't want that or you, you're scared of that, the invitation for you today is to come into it. To find out that maybe God wants to know you even more. Or actually, that God wants you to get to know him even more. God is with us. Even in the most impossible situations, he's with us even in death itself. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the dark valley of death, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good father. And that even in those times where we physically see that we are alone, in those times where emotionally we just feel alone, in those times, Lord, when we think that there is a big chasm between you and us, that you've left us alone, that you would remind us and whisper in our ears that you are Emmanuel that you have made a promise to be with us, that you don't see our sin, you just simply see your child. And you want all of us. You want all of me, and you want everybody here. 
You want every part of us. Because you made us. And you have declared us to be righteous through the blood of your son. Which means that we have an open invitation into your kingdom to be with you forever. Lord, thank you for being with us here. Because you don't have to be. But you want to be. Thank you, Lord, for being in our quiet apartments, in our failed marriages, in our widow status, in those identities where it just seems like you are completely alone. For the nerds in the school that are rejected by those who are popular. For those who don't seem to have a lot of friends. Lord, may you remind them this week that they are not alone, that they have the God, the King of the universe standing by their side. In your name we pray, amen.